the award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD, news from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast. I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us. Hope uh, all is well with you and your family. Good program for you today. Some interesting uh, deals that were announced, top stories, and also uh, quite a bit of economic data, especially when it came to inflation. So we're going to be diving diving into that. Uh, Also, uh, joining me in just a little bit, uh, the chief economist for the National Federation of Independent Business, uh, Mr. Bill Dunkelberg, is going to be joining me. We're going to be talking about that NFIB Small Business Optimism Index that came out this week. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't uh, so great. That hasn't been the case for many, many consecutive months. And uh, we're going to talk about why that's the case, exactly what these small businesses are dealing with. Um, And it's important because they're the backbone of America's economy. So we're going to really try to get our fingers on the pulse of uh, what's happening there. Well, one big deal was announced at the beginning of the week. J.M. Smucker said on Monday that it will acquire Hostess Brands in a deal worth approximately $5.6 billion. So Smucker is going to take ownership of um, uh, the uh, Hostess Brands. You know them, Twinkies, Cupcakes, Ding Dong, Zing. Ho-hos. And the company also is going, not only are they going to pay the $5.6 billion, but they're going to assume about $900 million of debt. So uh, that's a sizable deal. We had just talked uh, a few years back about the problems that Hostess was having with bankruptcy worries and all the nonsense that was going on there. So it looks like uh, they're going to... Um, uh, try to make this merger with Smucker uh, successful. And as with all these deals, time will tell. Um, also, we saw a huge IPO, initial public offering this week. Arm Holdings on Thursday climbed 25% on its first day of trading. Uh, so it uh, priced its public offering share per share at $51. And uh, it closed at $63.59. So this is a chip designer owned by the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank. Um, Very, very uh, huge IPO. A lot of anticipation about this. So um, Arm Holdings is headquartered in Cambridge, England. And they design semiconductors and software that powers them. So the company specializes in designing um, uh, CPU central processing units, uh, graphics processing units, and microprocessors. And um, these uh, chips are used in a variety of devices from your desktop computers to your smartphone uh, to data servers. Even some of them are in cars, apparently. So uh, several notable companies um, participated as investors in the IPO, including many of Arm Holdings clients in the tech industry, like Apple, like NVIDIA, like uh, Alphabet, 
advanced micro devices, Intel, big names that you recognize. So very successful IPO there for arms holdings. And um, I, that's kind of what the market needed. Uh, it's been scarce this year when you talk about initial public offerings. A lot of companies afraid to come to market. Uh, it's a very dangerous uh, timing type of uh, event. So you do all this work, you get ready for your initial public offering, everything's priced a certain way, and then all of a sudden if the the, the market, uh, that landscape starts to change, it could dramatically impact that debut and you don't make near as much money out of the gate uh, that you planned. So this worked out, I think, very, very well for ARM Holdings um, in this type of environment. And I think that also shows that there's just a lot of confidence there. And those big name tech companies that I mentioned that are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars behind uh, ARM is also uh, a, a really boost of confidence for other investors out there that were uh, trying to get into that initial public offering. So one of the things I've talked about for quite some time, and I equate uh, central bank digital currencies, I just say that equals scary. That's just the way I look at it. Uh, what we saw this week as... Um, lawmakers, elected officials made their way back to Washington after taking a month off. Um, a lot of conservative lawmakers didn't waste any time uh, bringing legislation back to the House floor to block a central bank digital currency here in the United States. So Tom Emmer from uh, Minnesota um, basically revived the Central Bank Digital Currency Anti-Surveillance State Act. Uh, that's a bill that aims to prevent the Federal Reserve and its member banks from issuing a digital version of the U.S. dollar and also using that digital currency to implement monetary policy. So uh, this is scary stuff. I know we all have a lot going on in our lives. There's a lot of scary things going on. We just need to make sure we don't forget about them. And we also need to make sure we understand the importance of them and how that they uh, will impact us, our children, our grandchildren, you name it. So according to Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center, as many as 130 countries, which represents about 98% of the global economy, are exploring digital versions of their currencies, okay? So that's bad enough. Then you've got 11 countries that have fully implemented a central bank digital currency. What's one of them? And I think the most important, China. Because China, the Chinese Communist Party, is all about control, all about suppression, all about manipulation, and all about retaliation as well if you're not on board with the Chinese Communist Party. So that's just another way in that fully surveillance state that they can, along with facial recognition and all the other garbage, that they can control the people in China. Which, you know, the problem's not the people in China. The problem's the Chinese Communist Party. You know, the, the problem is not the Iranian people that want to be free. It's the mullahs and all the uh, religious freaks 
um, and power hungry uh, people that stay in in power there and suppress them. So, you know, again, this has nothing to do with um, the Chinese people. It has to do with the Chinese Communist Party. And we obviously don't want to be doing anything that the Chinese Communist Party is doing, do we? For those of us who value our freedom, uh, we don't want a central bank digital currency where the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department knows everything we spend money on and who we support and what we support and everything else that goes along with it. Oh, and then, by the way, has the option, the opportunity to turn off or to limit or to suspend that digital currency account. We don't want any of that. None of it. You know, they can put that in their pipe and smoke it themselves in their boardroom at the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department and in the Oval Office uh, as they get everything else wrong with policy they can pack that pipe just as just as well as far as I'm concerned because we don't want any any parts of it it's just an invasion of privacy another invasion of priv- of privacy no matter how they spin it which is what they're doing um something else that's interesting so I think it's really important to keep a spotlight on um, what's going on with uh, companies, with politicians, with policy. Something that was really interesting this week, more than a dozen investors called on Nike to pay garment workers in Cambodia and Thailand that a labor rights group said lost wages after factory shutdowns. So um, that letter was sent to Nike's CEO, John Donahoe and um, the investors want Nike to provide $2.2 million in allegedly unpaid wages to more than 4,000 workers at two suppliers in, as I mentioned, Cambodia and Thailand. You know how much money Nike makes, right? And then people, you know, try to buy all their fancy stuff, their expensive shoes and shirts and hats and sweatpants and all that garbage. And then you step back and look at the garment industry on an international basis, and it will make you sick how these people are treated on the assembly lines at these garment factories. In Cambodia and Thailand, they're not even the worst, believe me. So, and this isn't the first time that Nike has been accused of this stuff. Now, obviously, they as they always do, they deny it or, you know, they're like, yeah, we didn't use slave labor to make uh, your fancy tennis shoe or, you know, your, your cool looking shirt with a swoosh mark on it. You know, some of these companies, they're, they're really so two faced. It it makes you sick as to what they support and um, how they make money. And that's just one example for sure. Um, and nothing's really going to change, I don't think, with this administration, with their um, their radical um, socialist, communist, Marxist push on this uh, climate stuff, which is all bogus. And they're saying that they're going to get to net zero, which is a lie. Uh, I'll bet you, I don't care, I'll bet you $10,000 It's not. Gonna, they're not going to get it to net zero by, I think, the even I'll take the 2050 mark. That which is further out than a lot of others saying we're going to get to net zero. If we do all these things with climate, we're going to get to net zero 
carbon emissions and all the other lies. Anybody that wants to bet, I'll bet you. I'll bet you $1,000. I don't care. I'll bet you $10,000. That's all a lie. And um, they have no way of actually backing that up. We see one failure after another. I'm not even going to get into, there's too many other things I have to cover this morning. The Secretary of Energy Granholm and her epic failure with her um, EV car cross-country trip and how they had to manipulate a charging station and block other people. It's just, it's baloney. Plus, look up the ingredients that are necessary for batteries. The lithium, the cobalt, etc. And then look at one of those sites on Earth and see the devastation that they do to the Earth to extract those minerals for their batteries that are going to go dead eventually. And then how are you going to dispose them? Traditional, reliable liquid natural gas and other fossil fuels nuclear energy are all proven proven to do less damage to be less expensive and to help people around the globe out of poverty period they can spin it they can, which is, I'll just say they can lie about it, but that's exactly what it is. I'll say it again. If you're an EV car enthusiast, that's great. Have a great weekend. I hope the weather's perfect and your windows are down and you're zooming around in your EV car or truck. For the rest of us who want reliable, traditional energy, at the cheapest price as possible, let us do our thing because you know what? We're going to. So as much favoritism and handing out money and cronyism and money laundering that's going on here in the States and abroad, because you have to remember that money that we're sending to Ukraine, the secretary of state just said that, um, well, they're going to spend $529 million of our money. It's not government money. It's our money in green initiatives in rebuilding Ukraine. Ukraine was already one of the most corrupt countries, not only in Europe, but in the world. And now you see this administration and sending people over there to, to work on this uh, green initiative stuff. This is pure out money laundering. It's corruption. So, um, you know, it's really important that, like I said, we're all busy. We all have a lot going on. We love our families, our husbands and wives and our children and our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all that. But we have to keep our eye on the ball. What's really important, what's going on, not some stupid shiny object that I mentioned time and time again with Hunter Biden, where, you know, they're going to try to take everybody's eye off the, all of these other important things. When we look at economic data this, uh, this week, 
Very unfortunate to see that uh, American households income fell last year. And that's because the cost of living jumped higher than it has in over four decades, over 40 years. So you've got this crazy inflation. Um, It marked a third straight annual decline since um, the virus hit, according to the data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Root calls of the virus. Thank you, China. Repercussions. Holding them accountable. Some type of compensation, which, of course, you can't bring people back to life. Um, But all of the financial devastation, none. Total weakness. But that's your root cause right there for the virus. I know this administration likes to talk about root causes. Well, virus, root cause, China. Really simple. I don't know why they don't just come out and say that. But what what we did hear from the government according to the Census Bureau, is that the um, real media, U.S. real median household income fell by 2.3%. Um, inflation as an average last year, 7.8%, the largest annual increase in the cost of living adjustment since uh, 1981. And then when you look at something called the supplemental poverty measure rate, which uh, accounts for participation in government programs that you fund because you're a taxpayer. It's not government money. It's your money, not theirs. It doubled from where it was in 2021, the participation in government programs, in taxpayer programs. That's sad. I mean, it's what this administration wants. They want you, um, basically just think of it like a baby's bottle, and they want you... Right there on that nipple, sucking down, you know, everything that they say they're giving to you for free and that they're so good at doing because they're a government agency and their services are so efficient, which is baloney. Um, But that's what they want. And unfortunately, that's what that report showed us. And back to inflation, we got two big reports along with that, you know, loss of uh, income purchasing power last year. But we saw that inflation accelerated for a second straight month Uh, in August. The Labor Department said that um, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which that's a broad measure of the price for everyday goods, including gasoline and groceries and rents, was up six-tenths of one percent in August from the previous month. And um, year over year, up 3.7%. Now, people are going around saying, hey, inflation's coming down. We're doing a great job. That's, yeah, that's not true. Because just think about how we felt last year at this time, paying extremely higher prices. Well, they were up 3.7% more from that same time last year. So, again... You can go pound sand. We're not gonna. We're not gonna fall for that. Inflation has created severe financial pressure for most U.S. households. If you're the ultra wealthy, great. You know, um, congratulations on your new, um, you know, uh, 500 foot yacht. I think that's great. Now, your carbon footprint. Uh, we need to talk about that because you're usually the freaks that are paying the supporters. Uh, and the um, uh, the uh, protesters and all that stuff. But I'll, I'll leave it there. Congratulations, you know, the ultra-wealthy. But for everybody else, they're paying more day, for everyday necessities, day in and day out, food, rent, energy. 
And that burden is disproportionately borne by low-income Americans who are already stretched and heavily impacted by these price fluctuations. Thanks, O'Biden. Thanks, EPA. Oh, hey, let's thank OPEC. We've got oil this past week up, depending on what uh, what you're looking at, whether it's crude or Brent or whatever. Over 90 bucks a barrel. Watch those gas prices go up this weekend. All on purpose. All of this is done on purpose by the people that um, are in office, whether legitimately or not. So, And then the producer price index, which is the wholesale level stuff, before it gets to us as a consumer, uh, their inflation was up 1.6% from a year ago. Uh, the You know, one of the big jumps, no surprise here, the gas index surged 20% in August. So the energy necessary to make the things that we need and that we want, when that goes up, it costs more to make it. Guess what? If you have something, a trucker brought it to you. Diesel fuel prices are up as well. It's it's all relevant. And it's all the fault of these people that are making these really, really stupid um, arguments and decisions on climate and green energy and all the other uh, foolish things. Uh, something else, just real quick, in that area. You notice people aren't talking about ESG too much anymore? Yeah. You notice that uh, BlackRock and Larry Fink and all those lapdogs for this administration and for the Clinton administration and Obama administration that want to be in the room so they'll do anything. They already have. They've sold their soul to the devil. Um, They're starting to back away from that ESG because it's blowing up in their face. Why? Because people like you who listen to programs like this and for years have been told it's a it's just a an empty basket. There's nothing in it that's any good, hardly. I mean, there are a couple of things maybe, but most of it's just all garbage. If you're a traditional environmentalist and you have always cared about the earth, um, you've been doing the right things all the way through. What they're trying to do and force is uh, actually, it, it's just the opposite. Because think about that. If everything's so good with what they're presenting and, and ramming down everybody's throat, then why do they have to pay us? Right? Why do they have to pay us and incentivize us and give us tax credits and all the other garbage? Because it is garbage. Talking with Bill... Dunkelberg on the other side of this, top economist at NFIB. Stay tuned. Going down on a John Deere, turning up a hard work check, making that blue collar country boy's neck red. I'm talking about the color of them jerseys on a Friday night at the end of another long 
paid for by Christian Care Ministry. If you are 65 or older, you know this. Watching your hard-earned dollars fly out the window on health care costs is so frustrating. But here's some great news. If you were just notified that your Medicare costs are increasing, a program out there can really help you with your medical bills. And it's worth taking a minute to look into. MediShare 65 Plus, it's not insurance. Members actually say it's better. It's a Christian health care community that aligns with your faith and where people encourage and pray for you. And MediShare 65 Plus is a low-cost option for those with Medicare Parts A and B, and it fills in the gaps where Medicare stops. You choose any Medicare provider, and you get telehealth access anytime you need it. And this is great, too. Unlike health insurance, you can lock in one low monthly price for up to 10 years. So don't get stuck with increasing costs. Call MediShare 65 Plus and find out how much you can save. Call 888-SHARE-89. That's 888-SHARE-89. 888-SHARE-89. Christian artist Zach Williams comes to the stage of the Great Frederick Fair this Saturday. You are my rescue story. For tickets, visit thegreatfrederickfair.com. We need great, the Great Frederick Fair. It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to Apple Podcasts and you can grab it there. Thanks so much for being with us this weekend. I appreciate it. Uh, If you're new to the program, welcome. Uh, If you've been with us for a while, thank you. And a special thank you to uh, the folks that have been with me since 1997. Uh, We're coming up on our 26th year uh, anniversary in November, and it's been so much fun. And, um, you know, I, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it and um, continue to enjoy it. And a big reason for that is because of the very smart people I get to talk to uh, in the uh, financial industry, uh, you know, in politics, etc. So um, that's what makes it uh, good for me and apparently good for you guys, too, because uh, we've gotten some very nice accolades. And that's uh, all because of your participation and your support over the years. Um, and another good example of that is uh, today uh, talking with um, our guest, Dr. Bill Dunkelberg. Uh, he is the chief economist for the National Federation of Independent Business, the NFIB. And um, he's nationally known. You've uh, not only have you heard him here on the program last time uh, was back in February, but you've seen him on TV, I'm sure. And you've read um, his reports. Uh, He's also a professor emeritus of economics at the school of business and management at temple Uh, other appointments. He's been at Purdue. He's been at Stanford university, university of Michigan, et cetera. And um, what we want to talk about today is earlier in the week, we got the uh, NFIB small business optimism, index and just kind of want to get caught up on what that was telling us and put our fingers on the pulse of the uh, small businesses across this country, which literally are the backbone as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dunkelberg, thanks a lot for being with us again. I appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. I always enjoy it. 
Okay, great. So if you will, give our listeners just an overview of, in case they're not familiar with the NFIB Small Business Optimism Index, uh, kind of what it is and, and what it tries to measure and tell us. Sure. Well, let's start at the, at the bottom. Uh, NFIB has about 300,000 member firms across the country. And so back in 1973, we launched our first survey. We take a random sample of the membership and mail a questionnaire out to them, asking them about uh, how the business is doing and what their expectations are, how's hiring, prices, all those kinds of things. We put those data together and make them available to the public uh, and, of course, uh, to Congress to let them know how uh, the small businesses are doing. Because back in those days, uh, small businesses were kind of ignored by uh, Congress and the regulators. It's all about big business. But we suddenly you had discovered that if you just look at the small business sector of the U.S., uh, it's the third largest country in the world behind, of course, the total U.S., and then China, and then uh, small business. A lot, of, a lot of business gets done with the small business owners. So the index is something we created uh, through uh, with some of the questions. Uh, it has 10 components, and uh, they're all kind of forward-looking components uh, to give us some sense of where the small business sector is aiming. So there are questions in there about hiring and, of course, uh, about uh, capital spending, inventory investment, uh, wages, all those kinds of things. We put those together in a monthly report, which you can get at NFIB.org and read it for free. So we encourage you to do that. Um, The index has um, had a a 50-year average October will be uh, we'll celebrate our 50th mailing, 50 years of mailing. Uh, the the 50-year average for the index is 98, and I, I think that the uh, index, you know, has uh, been below that for 20 months now. Uh, in fact, it's really been close to around 90. Uh, it did fall last month by six tenths of one point, but that's statistically not significant if you just look at the last. A uh, year or so, it's, we're really not different from 90, but that's so far off of the of the uh, av- just the average, and it's very typical what we've seen in the really bad recessions like the 1980 recessions, for example, or 2008. So we've been at recession levels for quite a while now. Is there a certain way that NFIB defines a small business? Uh, no, it's not. And actually, uh, if we go back to the name, it's National Federation of Independent Business. Um, so, you know, you, you just, uh, if the owners and the operators, you know, are private people and not some corporation, why you could qualify. But most, you know, that the great bulk of our members have uh, fewer than 50 employees. In fact, in fact, a huge percentage of them have fewer than 10 employees. So, but we're really small in terms of just employment size. Uh, definitely uh, a collection of small operators. But like you said, the NFIB is the third largest, uh, you know, when you look at um, the way you put it behind uh, America in total and then China. I mean, that's very, very powerful amount yeah. of uh, business. 
That's that's a lot of GDP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you, like you had just mentioned, your report, uh, you know, folks can go and get it and read it for free, along with a lot of other really interesting um, business and economic uh, and employment information on your website. Um, and you said that it came in at a reading in August of 91.3, the 20th consecutive month below that 49-year average of uh, 98. What are the main drivers that we've seen um, pushing this index below that historical average for the last 20 months? Uh, well, the, the, uh, the biggest driver downward has been uh, the questions we ask about the economy, about business conditions. Do you think that uh, the question is something like, do you think uh, business conditions will be better or worse uh, six months from now than they are today? And uh, that's been a huge negative. Uh, we've almost, well, we really haven't seen it any lower uh, in the history of the survey than we've managed to hit. So that's a big, big negative. Then following right behind that is expected sales, expected real sales. That's a big negative number. Uh, so that's a net minus 14%, meaning that 14 percentage points more owners said down uh, than said up. And uh, that, that's uh, so you put that together with a minus 37%, which is better than, by the way, if quite a few months ago, it was like minus 50 uh, uh the, uh, those are the two ser- really serious drivers of the index. The thing that actually keeps it higher than uh, than it might otherwise be are the unusually high levels of job openings and uh, plans to fill those up and hiring plans. Uh, those have been terribly strong. If you if you removed them from the index and then recalculated it based on just eight components, you'd find that we're really about as low as we've ever been in, in the 50-year history of the uh, of the index. But uh, somehow or another, as bad as their view of uh, the future is, um, they want to hire. And uh, and they they see an opportunity to make some money, and of course, consumer spending has been uh, surprisingly robust uh, through all of this nonsense that we're going through with the inflation and everything. So you know, they they say, well, if I could hire another person, I could make more stuff, I could uh, sell more stuff, I could make some more money, and so they would like to do it, and they try to. But if you look at uh, their report of their own success, as we asked them over the last three to six months, did you increase or decrease the total number of people working for you? That's been a negative number uh, now for most of the year. Negative meaning more firms say my employment uh, is falling than say it's rising. Yeah, and excuse me. Uh, just if you're just joining the program, talking with my guest this morning, uh, Mr. Bill Dunkelberg, chief economist for the National Federation of Independent Business. And um, so, you know, and that's just what you just said, like, you know, and it's in your, um, you know, some of your comments in the NFIB small uh 
Business Optimism Index. You said that with small business owners' views about future sales growth and business conditions uh, discouraging, owners want to hire and make money now from that strong consumer spending. Does it ever surprise you how resilient and just, um, you know, how wonderful so many of these independent businesses and small businesses are that um, even though they've got all of these, you know, the, the wind in their face kind of howling, they continue to 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 want to be prosperous and and provide and uh, just be, you know, um, uh, good stewards, if you will, out there for the consumer. Well, that's that's what entrepreneurs are all about. I mean, they. They're risk takers in the sense of uh, putting up their own money uh, to keep the business running. They most of them started their businesses with their own saving and built from there. Um, so they love uh, being able to uh, serve the consumer and deal with consumers. And of course, they like the independence uh, of owning their own business, which they. Hope will continue in the future, even though the the government seems to want to regulate them more and more and more. It seems to want to control everybody, large or small. But um, so NFIB uh, members continue to face a, uh, a a swamping of new regulations, trying to control how they do their business and what they sell and what they can't sell and uh, what prices they can charge and can't charge. Uh, but uh, but they're 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 optimistic about the future, and they love their independence, and they love their customers, and uh, so they're pretty happy uh, sticking with it. That's what makes them happy. Yeah, it seems that way for sure. So, you know, obviously, um, one of the things I know that was very very um, hurtful for the independent. Uh, and small business and entrepreneur was um, the virus. And um, I think they were unfairly targeted and uh, obviously it put a lot of them out of business. And um, the virus has done tremendous damage, obviously death and illness and, um, you know, tearing families apart because of financial issues and the mental health and the drug, et cetera. But it also did have a very big impact on um, those independent businesses. And the reason I bring it up right now, I just want to get your take. We're starting to get these hints, these little uh, droplets, if you will, about um, suggestions, recommendations, and then potential mandates and what that might mean going forward. If, uh, God forbid, you know, we were to have those draconian type of restrictions put in place again, do you think it would be even more difficult for these independent and small businesses to survive? Well, yeah, because basically what happens is that the the fixed costs of operating keep going up and going up and going up. I mean, one of the, uh, there one, this is one of many, but it's important. Just paperwork. I mean, the, the the best asset, the biggest, most important asset of the small business is the is the uh, entrepreneur owner, the, the genius behind the business, so to speak. And the more time that uh, they have to spend filling out forms and complying with stuff, the less time they can spend innovating and growing their business and serving the customers. And uh, that's that's been a uh, continuing problem over the decades, and it's not getting any better. Uh, 
it gets worse and worse all the time. And uh, so it's, a, you know, it's a regulatory tax that unfairly falls on the small businesses. Um, you know, the, you have to sort through, you know, tens of thousands of pages of the congressional record to find the regulatory changes that might affect you and, uh, and then try to figure out how to comply with them. Well, you know, small businesses don't have a legal staff and an HR staff and all of that. They have one person, the owner and the owner's family maybe, and they're the ones that have to do all, all that work and carry that burden. And so the more that the government uh, interferes with the operation and makes them comply with all kinds of uh, uh, regulations, the more damage is done and the harder it is to keep your business and also the harder it is to start one. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing I think that people um, often don't understand is with all that, um, if they aren't able to to uh, to have their own compliance department or people to handle, you know, in-house all the, the regulatory stuff. Um, you know, they have to uh, outsource that. Well, that's an additional cost, and that eventually is just an additional cost that one of two things are going to happen. Either the owner of the business is going to be able to eat it all, or they're not, and they're going to pass that on. So that just creates uh, more inflationary pressure like we've been experiencing for the last two and a half years. Exactly. You know, these costs have to get passed on um, because, you know, the the uh, owner doesn't have any place to go with it. I mean, the simple thing to think about is just uh, energy costs. Well, you know, if uh, the price of energy doubles, uh, what what can they do? Um, well, they can't, uh, in a competitive environment, they can't just uh, raise their prices uh, on their own, but uh, there's nothing they can do except pass those costs on to the, the uh, consumer, and they can do that uh, in the situation when you have the, this, uh, these costs that affect everybody. So when the government raises minimum wages or energy prices go up or uh, it increases, you know, other kinds of compliance costs, it affects everybody. And so those costs uh, rise and uh, can't, be, can't come out of the bottom line uh, because the bottom line is as skinny as it can be made in a competitive environment, so that everybody has to raise prices. And so that's what happens. I mean, we had 40% uh, just last month raising raising uh, their selling prices. That's, that's very, very high, and it's inflationary. It's much better than some of the numbers we've seen in the last two years. We've been up, you know, high as high as uh, 70% raising prices. That, of course, is inflation. That's inflation on Main Street and uh, generated uh, by government pressure. Yeah, exactly. Overspending and bad monetary policy. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So um, are there, I'm just curious, are there any sectors that are doing better than others out there uh, when we talk about the independent businesses? Uh, You know, you mentioned energy or housing or um, retail or anybody in particular that seems to be having an easier time or a tougher time in this environment? Sure. Well, it does go up and down again, depending on what's going on in the economy. Uh, let's look at let's look at housing and construction. Um, thanks to the Fed, you know, the mortgage rates have gone from you know three to 
7%. Uh, that put a real damper on the on total uh, growth in the construction industry. And, of course, especially the low end. And, the, and low end gets doubly squeezed because it's so hard to get uh, zoning permission to build uh, uh, cheaper houses and expensive housing. So the only thing you, you can make money on today as a, as a builder is to build, you know, uh, $400,000 houses, not $200,000 houses. And so we've seen house prices rise very dramatically. And so uh, that's not uh, going well in that sector. Um, the sectors that have been recovering um, most recently pretty well uh, would be uh, the prof- would be the non-professional services sector. Um, so uh, and that, and that, of course, grew out of uh, the fact that we'd shut down everything, including restaurants and uh, and gyms and all those wonderful things uh, where consumers get those services. Uh, got shut down because they were non-essential, and then they've slowly come back. So coming out of the uh, coming out of the the uh, COVID uh, problem, uh, the first thing that did well was uh, good sale because we could do it on the internet. <laughs> we could buy all kinds of stuff. Right. But now the now the spending is shifted over to the services, which is uh, where the employment growth has been now for the small business sector. Okay, interesting, interesting. And again, where's the best place for uh, our listeners to go to get all of this information from the National uh, Federation of Independent Business? NFIB.com. Okay, excellent. So again, go to NFIB.com, folks, and uh, you can grab the report that uh, uh, Dr. Dunkelberg uh, explained to us in detail this morning. The latest Small Business Optimism Index came out earlier this week, um, and also a lot of other very educational, informative, and honest information that they have on their website. Uh, Mr. Dunkelberg, thank you so much for taking the time. I think it was last February we talked, like I had mentioned, um, so maybe we'll uh, be fortunate to catch up with you in another six, seven, eight months and get another update for all of our audience. We'd be happy to join you. Excellent. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And I know you guys are really busy doing excellent work. So uh, thanks to uh, Dr. Dunkelberg and everybody at NFIB. Um, And again, go to NFIB.com and you can get all that information. Uh, We're out of time, so uh, we're up against a hard break. So we have to um, uh, end it here. Uh, Join me Monday through Friday, 550, 650, when I talk with Bob and Chris and and on the Morning News Express, and we get you those uh, business updates. And um, I will be back here next Saturday for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. Bill on his old ball cap has been like an A-frame house. We're sitting on a park bench with some beach nut in his mouth. So no one reads the paper. These days it's all online. But there he was behind the times. He looked up from the front page, said this world's done gone to hell. 
usually don't talk politics as far as I can tell we could use another Reagan boy he was one of a kind then he shook his head behind the times past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at wfmd.com a service of Holtzapel Heating and Air Conditioning <laughs>